So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the sixth chapter, just the 46th verse. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And may the Lord bless this reading of his word this morning to our understanding. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Father, simple question, simple statement, very short verse. But oh, the significance to each individual who calls you Lord, who proclaims or professes to be yours, and in particular this morning, who approaches this table. Lord, help us to understand the nuances of what you are asking us to put it into its proper perspective and, and to be honest with ourselves and to probe ourselves and, 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 and ask ourselves, well, when we call you Lord, Lord, are we really thinking about the significance of what that means? We'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our focus this morning is going to be on the taking of communion. We will take communion after the service or after the message But I have some questions for you to begin with that have to do with our understanding of communion. And then we're going to get into the text, and Jesus is really speaking in a broader term more about discipleship in general. But then we will bring it back in the application to speak specifically of communion just before we observe um, the sacrament. So here's question. I've got several of them, but here's question number one. What does it mean when we take the Lord's Supper? Now let me rephrase that. Let me uh, make it more personal. What does it mean to you when you take the Lord's Supper? Now let me qualify that very quickly. Because what I'm not saying is that, so okay, so what's your opinion on the Lord's Supper? That your opinion is just as good as mine. I'm not saying that. I'm not asking you to define the Lord's Supper by your own opinion. What I'm asking you is if the Lord's Supper instituted by Christ has a particular meaning and a particular purpose, well then how does your understanding of when you take the Lord's Supper compare to the reality of the Lord's Supper? I realize that might be a little bit nebulous, so let me see if I can give you an example to make it a little bit clearer what I mean. We've talked an awful lot about ethics and the standards of the kingdom of heaven in our discussion of of Luke's gospel, And, and we've talked about the difference or the relationship between ethics and morality. Ethics are the standards. The ethics don't move. They don't change. God is the one who establishes what is good and evil, and the revelation of his word establishes what the ethical standards of the kingdom of heaven are. Morality is how well we measure up to that. Where do we fall on the scale of uh, following the ethical standards of the kingdom? Well, it's, that's the way I, I'm referring to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper doesn't move. It doesn't change. It is defined by Christ and laid out for us in Scripture. And it has a particular meaning and a particular purpose. But the question I have is how does your understanding or how does your, what it means to you when you approach this table, how does that measure up to the reality of what we're doing and what it means? Now, there's another question that flows from that. And it's simply this. 
What are you saying when you approach this table? What, what are you actually professing? What, what, and you're not articulating it. You're not saying anything. There's no words that are, are no, nothing audible. But when you approach this table and you take these elements, you are professing something before your Lord and something before this church. What is it? And there's another question that underlines that, that we'll just very briefly talk about during the message. We'll talk about it more in the after church. And that is who should take this sacrament and who should not? And since this is a morning for questions so far, let me just go ahead and ask the last one that will answer all these questions this morning is, what is the cost of communion? What's the price tag? What's, what is the price of approaching this table and taking the Lord's Supper, if anything? Is, is there any cost involved whatsoever? Or does whoever really wants to just come and take these elements? I realize that these aren't the questions that normally people ask when they take the Lord's Supper. I realize that. And, and I also realize that most people don't even think about these and, and therefore, the way people take this supper is a variety of things that they mean in their heads. I mean, all the way from the Roman Catholic mass where they actually try to relive the sacrifice of Christ and their salvation in the elements to those who just think it's some kind of a weird Protestant liturgy that's tacked onto the end of the service. Well, none of those are the right way to look at the Lord's Supper. And so I'm, I'm going to try to probe and get into that this morning. Now, we know that Luke is preparing us, or at least he's introducing us to the kingdom of God, which we've talked about on various occasions, that this is one of the primary things of his book. He started out by introducing us to the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And, and then early in this chapter, we met the foundation, that he's the cornerstone. And we met the apostles as he appointed the apostles, the foundation of this kingdom on earth. Then we talked about what a kingdom dweller looked like in the Beatitudes as he described the nature of that dweller. Then he began to talk about kingdom ethics. Remember the, the impossible ethics that none of us can keep. And then beyond that, to talk about the motives. That it's not just what we do, it's our motives need to be right. Well, then he began to talk about the relationship of a kingdom dweller within the kingdom on earth with the rest of the world. And he made it clear that not everyone is going to be in line with what Jesus was teaching. There's going to be an awful lot of false prophets who are going to lead their followers like blind men leading them into a pit. And that there are going to be those who are not going to reflect the master, that a, that, that a pupil is not above his master. And so therefore, they're going to go off on their own. And these would be the kinds of people with logs in their eyes that are looking for the specks in other people's eyes because they're so pompous and puffed up and proud that they are self uh, involved with self-determination about what Jesus says and they're preaching their own doctrines. And that discussion flowed last week into a discussion of the different kinds of people that exist in the world. The, Jesus used the analogy of, of, of trees. And he says, basically, there's good trees and there's bad trees. And a good tree is going to bear good fruit and a bad tree is going to bear bad fruit. And out of the abundance of the heart, the storehouse of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we talked about what that fruit is, that actually it's, it's the words. It, it's the things that are taught and said that is the fruit that will help us determine 
then the nature of the heart. In other words, the, the tree doesn't change, but the fruit reveals what is in the tree. Now, this morning, we're going to ask ourselves another question. What happens when both a good tree and an evil tree, or a good soul and an evil soul, say the same words, the exact same words? How can we tell the difference? And that's where Jesus is going to take us this morning again as he talks more about discipleship in a broad sense, and we're going to narrow it down to a discussion of the Lord's table a little bit later on. So let's take a look at the text. Basically, it's very simple. It's just one line, and it's a question followed by an incredulous conclusion based on the question itself. So let's just take a look at the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Now, we, we, we need to determine what Jesus means by Lord, Lord, because everything depends on that as far as what this actually means and the way that we're supposed to interpret it. First of all, we need to see what the word Lord means, and then we need to see if there's any further significance in the fact that Jesus repeats it twice. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Well, most of you are familiar with the underlying word in Greek. It's the word kurios. And you also know that it's a broad word. It can be interpreted or translated in various ways. Anything from a polite address to God, okay? And, and several things in between. So the question we have before us, and, and I'll warn you, I'm going to belabor this fact a wee bit because it's very important. But the question we have before us is, how does Jesus use it in this passage? What does he mean when he says, Curios when he says Lord. Well, I'm going, I'm a, I'm, I mean, I, I am of the complete opinion, and most of the scholars that I read, the conservative scholars, uh, agree with me that when Jesus uses the word here, curios, he is speaking of his divinity. He's talking about the divine Lord. Okay, now let's just look at, what, what, at some of the, uh, the reasons that I come to that conclusion. First of all, looking at the Old Testament. Let's just remember where we are. We've got a bunch of people sitting on the side of a mountain outside Capernaum someplace. Uh, again, we've decided that this is Luke's rendition of the Sermon on the Mount. And these are mainly Jews. Now, in that particular time, they were very familiar with their Bible, which was the Old Testament. But the Old Testament that they would be using was called the Septuagint. It was written about 180 years earlier, and it was in Greek. It was the Greek translation of the Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament. And in that translation, a name for God is used over and over again, thousands of times, something like 6,000 times in the Old Testament alone. The, the, the word Yahweh is used to describe or define God. It was one of his titles. And, and in your translations, you can tell that because it's usually all caps, lowercase caps, if that's possible, small caps. Um, but it, it's set apart. You know that the underlying Hebrew word is Yahweh. Well, all of those times in the Greek Septuagint, all the times that God is addressed in that way, the word Yahweh is translated kurios. 
So that's a, a profound um, uh, a testimony from the Old Testament that Jesus is using this because he's speaking of theological things, he's speaking of ethical things, that he is using it in that context. But we're going to come into the New Testament, and particularly to Luke's writings, and in particular to what he says here in the Sermon on the Mount before we make our conclusions. The first thing I want you to remember is that this is an integrated sermon. Luke is not simply collecting things that Jesus said throughout his ministry and combining them together into a sermon. Granted, it's an abbreviated rendition of this compared to Matthew's, but the important point is that it is a sermon. It is integrated. There's a beginning and an end. It all happened on one day. So when Jesus makes a statement in one part of the sermon, it's going to remain true throughout the the, the focus of the sermon. Well, if we go back to the way he began it with the Beatitudes, we see that he identifies himself in a, uh, a divine way. Back in the 22nd verse, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And most of you know, because we've talked about this on a regular basis, Son of Man is not just a statement of his humanity. It is actually more of a statement of his divinity. Because when Jesus talks about the Son of Man, his favorite title for himself, he's talking about himself in the context of all redemptive history. He is the Messiah prophesied for hundreds of years. He is God incarnate, the Logos, who became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, who came so that he could go to the cross and die on the cross and pay for our sins and live a perfect life and impute his righteousness to us, go into the grave, the grave can't hold him, rising from the dead, ascended to heaven, standing at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, interceding for us and ruling over his kingdom and he will come again. That's the son of man, okay? You know, in a very long sentence. But nonetheless, that's who he's talking about. So that is going to hold true throughout his message. Now, there's also implicit evidence that he is indeed talking about himself in that divine sense. Because remember when we talked about the ethical standards of the kingdom? And how it was impossible for a human to keep them when Jesus says, love your enemies, do good things for those who hate you, to bless those who curse you and pray for those who are actively abusing you. We said, no way, There's no, a human can't do that, but Jesus can. And Jesus is revealing his nature when he does that. He's revealing his divine nature who can perfectly keep the ethical standards of the kingdom of heaven and therefore be um, able to um, pass that on to us. Also back in the 40th verse, when Jesus says that a disciple is not above his master. Remember that? Uh, and, and, but, a, but a disciple should reflect his master. We, we, we said that that's not necessarily true in a purely human context. Because quite often, a, 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 a student will surpass and, and, and exceed the, the, the level of his master. We use the example of Socrates and Plato. Plato, who was the, the student of Socrates. But that does hold true in, in the fact of Jesus. Because Jesus, again, the divine son of God who has come to earth to share the living word with us. The Logos who became flesh. We're not going to improve on his message. We're not going to improve on his teaching. So therefore, we reflect that teaching because he is the divine Lord. 
And finally, in a passage we haven't gotten to yet, is the one that we'll look at next week, where Jesus uses that beautiful parable about the two houses built on the two kinds of soil, one built on the rock. Well, when he's talking about building the house on the rock, he's talking about himself. He's the rock. And, and, and he is virtually directly referring back to a messianic passage in Isaiah that goes like this. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in me will not be in haste. He's talking about Jesus there. And so Jesus uses that as sort of the backdrop when he tells the next parable. So you put all those together and and there's no doubt. And again, I know I'm belaboring this point. It's important that when Jesus uses the word kurios, when he uses the word Lord, he is talking about himself as the divine son of God. Okay. So the question now is, is there any further significance than the fact that he repeats it twice. And he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Well, yes, there is significance. In scripture, when we see someone's name used twice like that, it, it, it is an expression of intimate knowledge. Usually it's in the mouth of God talking to people. And, and, and it's revealing the fact that God is saying, I know you. I know your heart. I know the fiber of your being. Hey, you're not pulling anything over on me. In, in, in other words, when Abraham is getting ready to sacrifice his son on the Moriah Mountains and the angel of the Lord, who turns out to be the Lord, stalks to him. He says, Abraham, Abraham. I I know what's going through your heart. You are going to be obedient to me. And Abraham says, here I am, Lord. When God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush, he said, Moses, Moses, I'm sending you to Egypt as my deliverer. I can't do it, Lord. Oh, yes, you can, because I'll be with you. I know you. I know the fiber of your being. I'm the one who protected you and brought you through that 40 years in Egypt and now 40 years in the desert. And now I need you to head back to Egypt and be my deliverer. When Jesus was talking with Martha, when Martha was complaining about Mary not not, uh, helping her serve, and Jesus says, Martha, Martha. It means, Martha, I know you. I know you inside and out. I know everything there is to know about you. And then finally, when Jesus knocks Saul of Tarsus off of his horse, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I know your heart. You cannot believe the plans that I have for you. And so when we see the, 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 the name used twice like that, it is an expression of intimate knowledge. I know who you are. And if you put that together with the fact that he's saying, Curios, divine Lord, Curios, divine Lord, all of a sudden it, it carries even more weight. Because the very nature of the word curios, even if it is used of a human master, it, it denotes the concept of a, of, of, of a master slave. Curios doulos. There is a master and there is a slave. And the slave or the servant is beholden, subjugated, submissive, and must be obedient to the master. And so therefore, when we say, Lord, Lord, we're not just saying you are the divine Lord of all creation, but you're my Lord. You're my master. You're the one that I am a servant of. I'm your slave and I'm really happy about it. 
Now you put that together, I think you can see what Jesus is saying. Why? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Why do you act like you know who I am? Why do you say you are the God of creation and I have knowledge of that? I know who you are and I accept it and I give you my allegiance and you turn right around and don't do what I tell you. Why? See, you you can see that that means that the rest of what he says here is incredulous. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I tell you? I don't know if you're paying attention, but... The question on the table is, what does this supper mean? And what kind of profession are you making when you approach this table? Well, it's my contention, brothers and sisters, that when you approach this table, you're saying, Lord, Lord. You're saying, you are God, and I am your slave, and I have come for communion with you. And if you don't get that, don't worry, we'll go back over it. We're not through yet. Let's go ahead and finish the rest of this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Um, Just for the moment, I want to revisit the context. I know we've already been through it, but we need to put this into its context of what we learned last week. Look back at verse 45 and look at the very last phrase of verse 45. And notice what Jesus said just before he made this statement. He said, out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaks. And we remember we talked about the heart was the source, the storehouse, the treasure trove, the storehouse. And there were exactly two kinds of people in the world, according to Jesus. There are hearts that are good and hearts that are evil. And remember, we asked ourselves, how on earth does the fact that we all start out evil, fallen, in the curse of the fall, how do any of us start out being good? I mean, end up being good. And Paul, of course, puts it very, very poignantly to us in Romans when he said, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. How on earth is there anyone who is a treasure trove of good? Well, we also answered that last week. Because God is in the heart. That's what makes the heart good. That's what changes the nature of the tree. A Florida orange is always going to to produce bitter fruit unless God, in a miracle, turns it into a full-grown navel orange with sweet fruit. God can do that. We can't. So the only way that a heart changes, as Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No one is going to see the kingdom of God unless you are completely remade, completely regenerated. That's how a good heart becomes good. And we talked about the fact that that good heart is going to be expressing what is in it, the goodness of what is in it, and the evil heart is going to express an evil that is in it. Now, here, here's where it gets really interesting. And I kind of laid this out at the beginning. That's the context. We have a context of out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But what if the mouth of both the fallen heart and the good heart are speaking the same words? What if they're both saying, Lord, Lord? How can you tell 
what the difference is. How can you tell the difference between those two hearts? Because you see, the, the one with the good heart, the one with the God in his heart, the one who is regenerated, has fallen to his or her knees and as a disciple is expressing the lordship of Jesus Christ in their life. You are my Lord. And I approach you as a servant and I'm really happy about being your servant because I know you have set aside a place for me where I will spend eternity with you and salvation is in you and righteousness is in you and the adoption as sons and daughters of God is in you. So therefore you are my Lord and Savior and that's what I mean by Lord, Lord. But tragically and most confusingly, There are millions of people who say, Lord, Lord, and they don't have the foggiest notion what it means. They they haven't subjugated themselves. They haven't bent the knee. They haven't become obedient to God. In fact, these are the very ones that Jesus just talked about when he says they're blind guys leading the blind and they're all going to fall into a pit. These are the ones that he talked about when he said they're not reflecting their master. They are elevating themselves above the teaching of their master. These are the ones with the logs in their eyes who are looking for the speck in in their neighbor's eyes who have become pompous and puffed up and proud and self-determining. And yet they say, Lord, Lord. You see, that's the, that's the profound problem that, um, that, that he is bringing out. <clears throat> I, I, I want to be a little cautious about the way that I go into um, what Matthew says. Because Luke is following a particular path here. And, and, and I just want to continue that flow for, for, for just a moment. But then I do think we have to take a look at the way Matthew uses this phrase because they're some of the scariest verses in all of Scripture. Basically, when Jesus says this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I, mean, what I tell you? First of all, let's just say he's talking to all of us. Okay, Anybody perfect here? Anybody ever fall short of what God has called you to do? Anyone ever sinned against God? I mean, never sinned against God? Of course not. Everyone sins against God. Everyone has the same problem. So in, in a sense, we all say, Lord, Lord, and end up not doing what he tells us to do. And there's a lesson there for us, but I think he is speaking more to the hypocrites. I think what he's speaking to is the one with the evil heart who is saying, Lord, Lord, and he's surrounded by them. He's surrounded by Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians and Zealots and all kinds of people who are saying, Lord, Lord, but they don't have any conception of who that Lord is. And and, and Jesus is, in a sense, incredulously asking them a question. I mean, do you not recognize? Did you think I wasn't paying attention? Do you not think I know what it means when you say, Lord, Lord? If you say, Lord, Lord, to me, what you are doing is professing me as Lord, and you are a slave. And guess what? Slaves follow what their masters do. Did you not pay any attention? Of course, that hadn't happened yet, but we're the ones who should be paying attention. When Jesus says, if you love me, you will do what? You will keep my commandments. You will obey me. The very foundation of this is is grounded in obedience. He also says it puts it this way. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. It is impossible for God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit to live in your heart. 
and for you to be completely rebellious and disobedient because that's the regeneration that we're talking about. So therefore, Jesus makes it clear, if you don't keep my commandments, in fact, he says it in the 24th verse, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And so basically what he's saying is, is if, if, if you change the way that we do the teaching, if you change my, my, my doctrines, if you change the relationship that I have with you where I'm the master and I tell you, then you're simply replacing God's words with your own traditions. It was the problem that existed in Isaiah's time. It was the problem that existed in Jesus' time. And it's the same problem that exists in our time. Jesus addressed it this way in Mark. He said, not every, I'm sorry. He said, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So in other words... There's no such thing as cheap grace, folks. There is no such thing as a discipleship that does not cost. And we'll get into the cost in a moment. But there is no such thing as, a, as, as, as carnal Christianity. And Jesus makes it absolutely clear when he asks the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Okay, two different kinds of people, completely different, evil soul, good soul, both of them calling Lord, Lord. How do you tell the difference? They're both going to church. They both seem pious. They might both be in the pulpit. One of them will be keeping the words of God and the other won't. One of them will be true to scripture and the other one won't. How do you tell the difference? You look at the actions. You look at their their life. You look at how closely they are reflecting Jesus. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, if you see a man on television saying, Lord, Lord, and yet he's worth $800 million, lives in a huge estate in Texas, has its own Learjets, and keeps all of that money for himself, he is not following the guidance of Jesus. That's not it. I'm sorry. If, if you see popes walking around talking about their calling, people calling them Holy Father, dressed in finery with the, the most amazing museum that is all his, wealth untold, that is not following Jesus. That is not reflecting him. That is not the life that Jesus lived, nor is it the life that he has called us to. And so therefore, you know the difference by their obedience. And the fact of how they reflect the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, once again, as I told you, oh yeah, before we go into that, let me at least touch on Matthew's version of this. Because Matthew kind of pushes it to the end of time. And, and, and then he, he talks more about the delusion of self-delusion of people who think that they're really following the Lord when they're not. This is what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your names and do many mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Notice the difference. When you call someone Lord, Lord, you're professing intimate knowledge of them. And Jesus looks at the heart and said, I never knew you. Because you didn't know what you were saying when you called me Lord, Lord. Now, as I said, Jesus uses this in a broad discipleship. He's talking about the cost of discipleship. I'm asking you, what is the cost of communion? And if you haven't gotten it yet, let me just go ahead and spell it out for you. I believe, brothers and sisters, that when you approach this table, when you take this communion without articulating it, without saying it, what you are saying is, Lord, 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 I know you. And I desire to have intimate communion with you. I desire for you to fill my heart and for the the resurrected Lord at the right hand of God the Father Almighty to walk these aisles in his spirit. That's what I want because I'm your slave. I'm your servant and I bend the knee and I come to this table broken with nothing to add, nothing to give except my life, my heart. Am I all, as the song said? That's the cost of communion, brothers and sisters. Don't think that I'm going to pass the plate later on after we pass the elements, you know, and, 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 and ask you to pay for communion. You know what they called that in the Middle Ages? was simony. Actually, they used to do that. They used to charge for the sacraments. Horrible, horrible, terrible thing to do. Of course, we're not going to do that. But the cost of communion is the same as the cost of of discipleship. It is to give yourself heart and soul, hook, line, and centered, and, and hook, line, and sinker to, to, to Jesus, to call him and to see him as your complete and total Lord and Savior. I think that when we talk about how we should approach this table, I think we can learn from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I'm going to read part of it now and part of it later on when we actually take it. But this is what he writes when he addresses the way that the Corinthians are taking the Lord's Supper. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And in some very harsh language, he says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. I bet that you never ever considered that before you approached this table. Are you taking this in an unworthy manner? Well, unfortunately, I would have to say that most people who take this communion take it in an unworthy manner. I don't like to say that, but I think it is true. I mean, there's tens of millions, hundreds of millions of Roman Catholics who actually assign sacramental salvation to this. You take the Mass and your sins are forgiven. That's taking the Supper in an unworthy manner. But Protestants do it too. 
Protestants have sort of stuck it on the end of their services. I went to a church one time where when they served the Lord's Supper, the pastor just said, oh, by the way, when you leave, the elements are back there in the, in the alcove. Take yourself some grape juice and, and, and some bread when you leave. No, no reverence, no time of meditation, no understanding that when you come to that table, you're actually saying, Lord, Lord, I'm your disciple. This is a sacrament that was designed and developed for disciples, for Jesus to commune with those he loves. Luke tells us he desired with a great desire when he took that Passover meal and instituted this Lord's Supper. He had a great desire to spend with his disciples. He looks forward to this. He enjoys being here in our midst and sanctifying us in the process. And unfortunately, I think that it's just some kind of strange liturgy that's stuck on the end of the, of the service. What do you mean, eat someone's flesh and drink their blood? That's creepy. What does this actually have to do with me? And yet they take it anyway, never thinking about what Paul says. So this kind of brings up one of the other questions that I was asking. Who should take this? And and as I said at the outset, I'm I'm not going to take a lot of time now to talk about this. I would like to address it in the after church if we have time. But who should take it and who shouldn't take it? Let me address those who should not take it first. First of all, obviously, if you're an unbeliever, don't let the plate pass. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have not accepted him as Lord of your life, then it's a wonderful time to consider your own mortality, what you're going to do when you stand before God and he asks you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What are you going to say? Who's going to be your champion at that time? Who's going to pay for your sins at that time when it's so late? That's, those are the kinds of thoughts that you should have. Um, in the after church, maybe we'll talk about those who are nominal Christians who just come once or twice a year or, you know, and, and they still take communion. But there's also another group that is very important um, that we address, and, and that's your children. Uh, I, I, I leave the children in for the Lord's Supper when we take it before the message so that they can see you partaking in this particular sacrament. But it doesn't mean they should take it, no matter how much they squeal and say, I want to. We are still loosely associated with a denomination that actively promotes children, unprofessing, non-professing children taking the Lord's Supper. Parents don't do that. As Paul said, they're taking it in an unworthy manner. They can't possibly be doing it because they're not disciples yet. They're not professing Christians, so don't lead them into eating, drinking judgment upon themselves. Thirdly, and I won't talk about it now, but it certainly is a part of it. It's very rare these days. Is It's sometimes implemented as part of church discipline. The elders of the church will will bar someone from the table, usually with unrepentant, repetitive sin. But it's the fourth group that I just want to address very briefly. And that's professing adults, brothers and sisters in Christ who are going through a time of overwhelming temptation, going through a time where the world is closing in on them. And they they, they just feel that things aren't right between them and the Lord, and so they let the plate pass. Let, Let me encourage you, if that's you ever, And we all go through times of valleys. But if that's you, don't make that decision on your own, please. Don't decide that you're going to bar yourself from the table. 
contact me, ask for an appointment, contact the elders. The elders will talk about it. We'll sit down with you. Let us be part of that because discernment is needed there. Oh, yes, there are times when you should be barred from the table, but there are times that you need to be here because this is a means of grace, not in the way that the Catholics say it, but it is a means of sanctification. And the one who can help you overcome your temptations is the one who you commune commune with when you take this supper. So don't bar yourself from the table. Come and talk to your elders and, and let your elders help you determine whether or not you should take a break from the, 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 the table of the Lord. But enough as far as those who shouldn't take it. Let's talk about those who should. And brothers and sisters, it is my prayer that that's most of you professing brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Come to this table. Come with your heart wide open if you actually can say to Jesus Christ, Lord, Lord, and know in the context of what we have just said this morning, you know you mean it. You know that he is your Lord. You know that he, he is um, the master of your life. Come to this table, all who desire a closer relationship with him. Come to this table with your life and with your, and, and with your, uh, um, your good times and your bad times, with your righteousness and your sinfulness. Whatever it is, come with all your person and lay it before the Lord on this table. Come to you, this table, all who count Jesus as friend, but more importantly, all who count him as Lord. Recognizing what that word Lord actually means. Come to this table because it is a table of remembrance. It is a table where those who have been redeemed by the Holy Spirit because of the cross work of Jesus Christ, we are new creations in him. Come to this table because you are righteous, declared righteous before a holy God, not with your righteousness, but his righteousness. Come to this table because your sins are forgiven. Come from this this table because you are his and he is yours. Come to this table because this life is not all there is. Come to this table because this is a symbol of a much greater table and a much greater feast. The feast between the wedding feast of the Lamb, between the bridegroom who is Jesus and the bride who is you. I know that's weird for men, but that's the way it is. You are the bride of Christ. And when you come to this table, you come as his bride. You come faithfully, with fidelity, with, uh, uh, with, with a, a sense of love and obedience to your Lord and Master. And that's the way we will spend eternity is at that table, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Come to this table because he is coming again. And when he comes again, he will divide the world between the sheep and the goats. Exactly two kinds of people. And those who call him Lord, Lord, will have an eternity with him in heaven. Brothers and sisters, come to this table, calling him Lord, Lord, recognizing that when you do so, just as Brother Clayton said earlier, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? But if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. With that in mind, if you can say, Lord, Lord, 
then this table is designed for you. And spend a few minutes as we prepare for it in meditation, preparing your heart for walking to this, you're not going to walk, but symbolically, to the table, and thereby saying, Lord, Lord. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, our dear Lord Jesus, we come to you now saying, Lord, Lord, professing to be yours, professing to be disciples, asking for an intimate time of communion with you. You have told us that when we gather in your name, you're here anyway, but especially when we take this sacrament, when we gather together as your people and we, and, and we come to this table and we take the elements, you are here in a very special way. You, you actually just quicken us to that presence. And we grow and are sanctified through this. Lord, may each one of us be filled with that, that, that spirit. May we be filled with that love for you. And if anyone is here who does not know you, may you take this time to flood them with your spirit and to regenerate their hearts so that the next time we take this, they might be attending. Lord, we just give you the glory and pray that you will be blessed by the, 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 the honesty of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. With the elders who are going to pass up the elements, please come forward as we prepare our hearts for this communion. The great thing about messages that are focused on communion is we get to have an object lesson right after. We get to apply it. We don't have to wait for an application. The application's immediate. We, we, we get to engage in the sacrament and, and, and apply what we, what we have learned. Let me make sure that I make something clear. This is not a table for perfect people. If you're, if you're a perfect person, you don't need to come to this table. It's for sinners only. Just as it's for disciples only, it's for sinners only. Every single one, we're, we're all sinners. I'm, I'm not saying that if you have sin in your life, don't come to the table. Because it is for all of us who know that we're sinners, but we also know where our salvation is. We also know where our righteousness lies. We know where our hope is. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And, and, and if you love the Lord... If you profess him with your mouth and you believe with him completely in your heart that he was raised from the dead, then you're welcome at this table because it's, it's not our table. Hopefully, I've fenced it well enough already. I don't need to go into any more. We're going to pass out all the elements first, and then we'll take them all together.
that passage that I read you from 1 Corinthians, Paul is reprimanding the Corinthians for taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and setting them straight. And as part of that, he tells them what it should be and how it came about. And we read those words now. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me just repeat that in light of our Lord, Lord discussion. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, your own salvation, your own righteousness, until he comes, his return as Lord and Savior, in power and glory. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, what a magnificent plan of salvation you have. What a privilege, what an honor, what a a, a sight of the glory that is yours, just to be part of it. Lord, we know that, um, as we have been reminded of uh, just recently, losing um, several of our dear brothers and sisters, that our life is a blink, that very soon, no matter how young or old we are, in the context of all of time, we will be with you, and we will leave these bodies behind and this world behind. And then we look forward to the time that you have promised us that our bodies are resurrected and we are reunited with them. And, and then in a new heaven, in a new earth, full of new creations, we spend that eternity with you, perhaps we won't have any concept of time. Perhaps we live in a constant presence. Perhaps we don't know that it's an eternity, but whatever it is, the glory that we look forward to is that we will be in your presence and that you will present us as your bride, undefiled, imperishable, unfading to your Father, and, 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 and that describes our hope because we know that that is our hope. Our hope is kept in heaven by the power of God. And we eat and drink this sacrament with the full knowledge that it represents not only what you have done for us, but what you are doing for us and what you will do for us and the eternity that you are preparing for us. Eye has not seen, nor the heart of man imagined what you have in store for those of us who love you. We'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.